to, uh, to come and speak this morning at Harbor. This, uh, this event has been an important event in the life of our movement and my life as well. I, I grew up in San Diego, California. My dad preached at uh, the Old Mason Church of Christ uh, down in San Diego area. And each year I look forward to the Pepper Nine Bible Lectures for a couple of reasons. The first was my grandparents were coming from Texas. It was extremely exciting. We didn't see them all. Uh, and so my parents would go to the lectures. And, and, and the second reason was because, uh, well, we've been having a guest preacher who's with us that Sunday. It's not anything against my dad's preaching, but uh, it was exciting because that preacher would come and stay with us. And that was where I got to know Mike Cope for the first time about 30 years ago, uh, coming to San Diego and preaching in our church. And nearly 30 years later, I now understand why my parents enjoyed uh, these lectures so much. Uh, first of all, it is the wonderful teaching that's here, right? It's the, the, the gift that's here to the years of my decade of ministry so far has been a gift for me. And now I realize even more how important the grandparents coming to visit was for them as well. Which leads to a question because my wife's at home right now and my parents are here. It seems you all have double dipped. <laughs> the kid. But it is good to be here this morning. Hasn't this been a great week already? Brian's on. Christine Kane, to Rick Ashley's message, and then last night to Don. Wow, what a powerful week, and what an important topic, a person, the Holy Spirit. And of course there's the beach, right? Something that draws us here every year about the beach. Even the sound of the water seems to have that magnetic pull and draw to us. Recently our family went out to dinner with a family from our church with young kids about our kids' ages. Our kids are eight, six, and four. And uh, it was a, a great night. We were going out. There was a, on the patio, there was a play area outside so we could enjoy conversation while the kids were playing out there. And unfortunately, we showed up that night, and, and they hadn't brought their kids. They had a sitter for their kids. They expected us to do the same. And so this was not a good start to the evening. <laughs> and so we, uh, we sent the kids to go play uh, near the, the, the area of the playground. And there was a fountain out there, a splash pad. Uh, and we told them, whatever you do, just don't get in the water, right? <laughs> and so uh, our, our oldest two are more rule followers, but that youngest one, oh my. And she decided uh, that there was a draw to those waters that was calling uh, her name. And so she wanted to, in her words, cool off a bit. Uh, <laughs> and uh, boy, destroy the rest of that evening as we're trying to have a, a conversation. We did bring a change of clothes. And I, I've got to think about that moment, about my daughter, who was three at the time, being drawn to these fountains. And uh, as I've been reading and sitting with John 7, I have to think that there's something to the drawing of water. It's what draws us this week in some way. Some of you will spend time, not in sessions, but on the beach, because there's something about the crashing of those waves against the shore that taps into something deep within us. There's something there. In fact, some of us, we've got vacations already planned later this year, don't we? Most likely they'll be planned near some body of water, an ocean. Maybe a lake that you've been to many times. Maybe a river that's a special place where you go fly fishing. I don't know what it might be for you. In fact, people go into debt. It's funny, isn't it? We chided our, our, our daughter, Brooklyn, for getting wet and going toward the water, but well, we get in all kinds of trouble ourselves around water. We're drawn to it. It's amazing, uh, the draw of water. In fact, uh, property values that have overlooking water have a 116% premium they can count on above any other property. And we'll pay 10 to 20% more for our hotel room if it has an ocean view. There's something about the water. Water makes up 70% of our bodies. It makes up 70% of the Earth's surface. We're drawn to water. Some people fall sick tonight to the recorded sound of water. A 
or maybe the actual sound here. And if you listen closely to scripture, you begin to realize there's a soundtrack that is in the background the entire time. It's water. We don't listen that way because we use other senses most often when we come to scripture. This morning I want to invite you into scripture to see it in a new way, to hear the way that water plays a role throughout. In fact, all the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we begin to see this, don't you? Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Before God even speaks a word into creation, the Spirit of God is already there for the waters. That theme will show up again. Pay close attention as we move on. Keep that connection between water and Spirit. Can you think of other schools where the sound of water is there in the background? Can you hear the splash of the well as Abraham sends his servant to find Isaac, a wife, near a well. A well is a meeting place, isn't it? It's where others have found spouses in Scripture. Mm -hmm. Think about uh, Moses, right? Moses flees Egypt and he finds himself at a well for feeding and watering the flocks there in Midian and he discovers his wife because he was doing that with her, uh, her father. But think more in Moses' story, right? As it goes on, you can see Moses stretching his arms out, right? Over the Red Sea. And can you imagine the sound of that wind that blows in from the east that parts the waters. Can you hear it? It sounds different than just watching the story. Maybe you go back to the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's what I go back to. Or maybe you think about the time where Moses struck the rock when they needed water most. And can you hear the gush of water? It's just pouring out from that rock. Water is all through this story. Or, or can you remember that moment where the, the, the priest's toes touched the waters of the Jordan River, right? That scene, you can almost sense this invisible dam that's holding back the waters for Israel to pass through. And of course, there's Amos' prophecy, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. The sound of water is found throughout the story. As we come to the Gospel of John, what we realize is this is in every single chapter leading up to chapter 7. Chapter 1. You look back at the story, and John the Baptist has to raise his voice over the sound of the waters. As he tries to proclaim that there is one coming after him, it's even more important. John 2, you can hear the sound, can't you? They're in Cana at the wedding. And he tells those who were there, the, the stone water jars, you remember that sound, right? 20 to 30 gallons of water being poured into these jars. The sound's there if you have ears to hear. Then in John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Do you remember the sound? Well, it wasn't so much a sound, but it was a reminder of Jesus that... <laughs> No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And he clarifies that in verse 5 when he says, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. There's that theme from Genesis 1 again. John 4, Jesus shows up to a well. There's a Samaritan woman there. And he asks for her to create that splashing sound again, right? There it is, the water. John 5, Jesus heals an invalid by the pool of Bethsaida. John 6, there's that sound of water as the disciples are in the boat. And as they're in the boat, they're afraid. And Jesus walks by on the waters. But no one presses stop or pause on that soundtrack when we come to John 7. It's still present. It's there. And Jesus knows his moment. It's time for the Feast of Tabernacles. And the disciples are assuming that the itinerary reads Jerusalem because that's where you go. They just lost all these crowds in John 6 with Jesus' words about you know, body and blood and all this. So now it's time to go and recover more of a crowd, more of a folly. Go to your science, Jesus. Let's go to the big festival. 
And so they go to that place. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not my time. In fact, I want to read from John 7, verse 6 through 13. Listen to Jesus' response here in John as he talks about his time. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going out to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Not at the festival the Jewish leaders were watching, uh, at, at, the, at the Jewish festival the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. And others replied, nah, he, does, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Fear of the leaders. That means something to the second generation group of disciples, doesn't it? And so they come, the disciples go to Jerusalem, but it's not yet Jesus' time. Jesus knows his timing. We'll find out in a few verses what that timing is. It has something to do with water. But first, a word about the Feast of Tabernacles. I've a lot about it as I've been sitting with this chapter. The Feast of Tabernacles is the last of seven festivals in the Jewish year. It came in winter, it came after the harvest. It was a chance for them to thank God for the harvest that they had received for previous years. It was also a chance for them to look forward and ask for rain from God for the agricultural season ahead. <coughs> Thousands of pilgrims would flood into Jerusalem for a week of feasting. And it was also known as the Feast of Booths because they would set up these, these temporary shelters that they would live in for those seven days. And, and during that feast, they would petition God for rain. And you can see how a story in Exodus, about God providing food and water for them in the desert, all of a sudden has all kinds of meaning in this uh, new day when they need rain the following year. <laughs> because the question was, will the rains come for the crops before spring? And during the week, there would be sacrifices, and there would be prayers, and there would be singing, and there would be petitioning God for this rain to come again. Send your rain, O Lord. The religious leaders would teach during the festival about the significance of, yes, you guessed it, water about its significance, about the need for it, about all that was there in Scripture, these Scriptures I pointed out, and others I'm sure as well. And each morning of that feast, there would be a parade of sorts. They would go from the temple, and they would go to the Pool of Siloam. This Pool of Siloam that had given them water in the midst of exile and being shut out from those who were outside the city, and given them life before. So they go to this pool, and, and, and the priest would dip out a, a pitcher of water. You hear the splash of that moment, right? He dips out that water, and, and there's this parade going back, and while they're going back, trumpets are being blown, and while they walk back, the Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118 are being sung all around. This priest carries a procession forward to the temple. And each day, that priest would walk one circle around the altar and would pour out that water into a basin. At the same moment as the morning prayers, he would pour out the wine also. A reminder of what God would do in the days to come. So for seven days, they would go and participate in this parade. Now, I don't know what you imagine as a parade, but one source said about this procession, he who has not seen the joy of the water drawing ceremony has never seen joy in his lifetime. I'll give you a picture of what it's like. Can you hear that splash? The splash of drawing water out and the splash of pouring water on the altar and into the base. Seven days, this goes on and on. But all these days built up to the last great day of the festival. 
Because on that day, the high priest would take a, a pitcher of water, and he would take the wine that he would pour together, and, and he would pour it on the altar in this incredible moment. It was the climax of the festival. And in that moment, the people would scream, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us. Save us, yes, in the form of rain this following year, but also save us from the oppression of the Romans who invaded, have invaded your land, our land. You can imagine what a big moment that would be, right? Seven days of sleepless nights with children crying right around in your boots. Seven days of going on this parade to draw water out and be poured in. And finally, the big moment occurs on that seventh and last day. All of them, as they gathered, they, I'm sure, picked the right spot right in front of that altar, right? For years, they've done this from since they were children, waiting for that moment where the splash occurred. With that in mind, I want to read Jesus' words. John 7, verse 37 and following. Hear that splash as I read this story. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Talk about a mic drop moment. You see what Jesus is doing? He doesn't go up on the first day of the feast. His timing is not there. What he waits for is that splash moment. Seven days of preparation, and the high priest comes and pours out the water and the wine. And the moment the splash happens, Jesus steps up and says, Anyone is thirsty? Come to me and drink. What a moment. He chooses this moment. A moment where they've been focused on their very real needs for water. And he calls them to their spiritual thirst. Thirst, he insists that he can do something about it. It is a remarkable moment. And what he's saying is, you've been gathered at this feast for thousands of years, thanking God for the rain that he's brought, and, and petitioning God for the rain he will bring, and the Messiah he will bring. Well, it's your lucky day because this is the year. I'm here, and I can provide what's needed. And guess what? That spirit will do it in the future as well. That's what verse 39 says. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So what would you expect the response to be in this moment? I mean, all these years, people have been gathered. They've been going through these rituals. They've walked through the parade. They've blown trumpets. poured out water in hopes that one day, living water will be provided. You would hope it would be a receptive moment, wouldn't you? But let's read on to see the response. John 7, verse 40 and following. On hearing his words, some people said, surely this man is the prophet. Another said, he's the Messiah. Still others ask, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. And Nicodemus had gone to Jesus earlier. And one of their own number asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You'll find the prophet was not from Galilee. It's a divided response. Some believe and some doubt. Some are threatened. And some, Nicodemus, is wondering still about that encounter in chapter 3. 
But it seems clear that these lead leaders are threatened, right? What do they go on? You must not know the law as well as you should know it. It seems that the very leaders who are doing these rituals, trying to open people's eyes to what would one day come, are the very people who are blinded most at the moment that Jesus arrives. In fact, I would suggest that the very ritual that is intended to create a hunger and thirst for the Messiah is the very ritual that is standing in the way of them seeing Jesus when he shows up. Which reminds me of a couple of other stories, right? If you think about that theme. Think about Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison because of another festival in town. So the church gathers to pray for him. Do you remember this scene? They gather at this house and, and an angel shows up because they've been praying for Peter's release. Busts him out of prison. And Peter shows up. He hurries to the door of this prayer gathering. He knows where they were gathered. And he, he knocks on the door and Rhoda, the servant girl, shows up. And, and, and do you remember the response when, when she so, shows up and she sees Peter at the door? They say to her, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. Be quiet so that we can pray for Peter's release. Isn't it amazing how sometimes our rituals blind us fulfillment, the very thing we desire most? Sometimes the rituals can blind us to the very activity of God that's right outside of the doors that we bar people from. You remember Jesus' words? Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Anyone who is thirsty. Thirst is what's needed. Or John 5, the Jewish leaders are trying to kill Jesus because he was breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal with God. Jesus has some difficult words for these Jewish leaders. You remember these words? This is John chapter 5, verse 37 and following. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, that you refuse to come to me to have life. What an indictment. Gathering for their ritual, right? know the law. And yet the very scriptures they go to, they're blind to the very thing, the word, the capital W word, these scriptures point them to. Anytime we gather for a ritual, anytime we open our Bibles, anytime we gather for church, anytime we gather for a festival or harbor, I guess, today, we have to be very careful. Because the very ritual, the very gathering, the very practice that is meant to open our eyes to Messiah might just be the very thing that blinds us and keeps us from seeing Jesus and receiving the spirit that God desires to send. So woe to us, ministers and church leaders, who are preparing rituals that are blinding to the very life source that God draws us to. Today, I, I want to deliver a word of challenge to, to two groups. One is for the church leaders in the room. And the others for the church as a whole. First, I want to speak a word to the church leaders who are here. When we read a story like this, we know better than to admit it, but we often read ourselves in the story as Jesus, don't we? When I put myself in this high priest's shoes, I think I can understand the frustration. Because this is the high priest's big moment, isn't it? This high priest knows this feast well. This high priest has probably come as a boy to Jerusalem. He's probably stayed in those booths. He's probably woken others because he was crying at night. And I'm sure he spent time at the parade. 
He memorized Psalm 113 to 18, so he knew just the moment he could sing along with all the others. And he remembers the splash of the priest who draws this water up, and he remembers the splash on that seventh day, the big moment. And I'm sure he dreamed one day that he might be the one to pour out that same water. I'm guessing he dreamed of the day he might be there in that very moment when he was there. This is his special moment. He'd been preparing for it for much of his life. And as he marches from the pool on that seventh day to the temple, I imagine his adrenaline is pumping as the crowds are shouting. I'm imagining he's thinking about generations in the past who aren't here to see this moment. As he prepares to do this act, all of a sudden, a man steps in front of him at the big moment. And he steals his big moment. In fact, he yells out, if anyone is thirsty, come to me to have a drink. Are you there? Are you in his shoes? Picturing, not with Jesus, but with this high priest, what that would have been like that moment. What are you thinking in that moment? What are you feeling in that moment? Anger? Indignation? Who does this man think he is? I mean, this was my big moment. This was my stage, and I went to school for this. I paid the price for this. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. How many of you have ever been in the shoes of that high priest before? You received a call to ministry? Trained for ministry? You received a call from a church to go and minister? You prepared to lead the rituals? In the middle of the ritual, the world changed on you. You prepared for ministry in a Christian world but quickly discovered a post-Christian reality on its way. You grew up in an era when churches of Christ were booming and growing. But the neighborhood changed. The situation changed. Something shifted. Or maybe literally, you were in that church that was doing so well, and the neighborhood did change. And all the people in that church decided to move elsewhere, move outside to those suburbs, to flee the coming diversity moving in around you. I grew up in a Southern California church like many of yours. Started around the Dust Bowl era, wasn't it? Most of these churches. Churches that came and were established, and I had watched my dad love the church he served by. But like a lot of you who served churches in this area, he never wound up on America's fastest growing church list. The world changed, and it continues to change under our feet. And some of you are angry. Angry that for God letting this happen on your watch. You feel more like a church funeral director than you feel like a church growth expert. The high priest understands. He has a lot at stake in this Jesus who shouts this business about living water. Because if Jesus has fulfilled the purpose for the feast, then what happens to the feast next year? Do we come back to harbor next year when Jesus shows up? Could this be the end of a ritual? It's been going on for generations. It'll change, certainly. God is doing a new thing. And you're an expert in the old thing. And if Jesus truly is who he says he is, then things are about to change. And as a preacher in a North American Church of Christ right now, I think I can understand what it's like to wonder if everyone around you is leaving the ritual you've been preparing all your life to leave. What happens when you've educated yourself in ministry? And there's a question if the church in North America will have any need for the rituals you prepared to leave. Can anyone feel this anxiety? Perhaps you're not a full-time minister. You're a leader, a teacher, a, an elder in a church. 
Isn't there that anxiety in our lives? Sensing that the church, the world is changing around us. And the church you're leading may not be around forever. It certainly isn't the size it was when you got there. And everyone loves to talk in the church about the glory days. To go on and on eloquently about those days when things were booming and things were great. And, and, and the kids now have left, and if they've gone to church anywhere, it's not a church of Christ. I have to imagine that many of us understand the high priest. See, Jesus is a threat. Jesus is disrupting the, thing, the way things work. He's disrupting the ritual. For thousands of years, high priests have done their ritual, and it might just end on this guy's watch. But that was the point all along, wasn't it? The point was never the ritual. The ritual is only necessary until Jesus arrives on the scene, until the Spirit arrives at living water. Jesus was the fulfillment of the ritual, the hope of the ritual. And if that's true, then the end of Christendom might not just be a death. It might just be a new birth and a new thing. It might just be the very work of Jesus and his Holy Spirit to do something entirely new in a new era and in a new place. Second, I want to speak a word to all of our churches. For too long, we have been coming to rituals, hoping that our rituals would quench our thirst. But no ritual will quench your thirst. A new dynamic preacher will not quench your thirst. A more excellent worship service will not quench your thirst. Another Bible study will not quench your thirst. If you are thirsty, there's only one thing that will quench your thirst, and it's Jesus. And it's His Holy Spirit. That he sends to provide living waters for anyone who is thirsty. But from the beginning of our tribe's existence, we thought that restoring the way of perfect worship was the way that we were going to restore this kingdom. That was the way that the living waters were going to return. And so we trained our experts in getting that ritual right. We even ensured the right psalms were read at the parade. We made sure the pitcher that would carry water shined with a glimmer when the priest poured it into the basin. We did leave out the trumpets that played that entered the city, but, <laughs> but when it was time for the water and the wine to be poured out on the final day of the feast, we knew how to pour out that splash in just the right way. Better than others knew how to do. And in trying to get it right, I wonder if we missed out on the very point of it all. When we gather for worship, we are confessing our thirst, aren't we? Blessed are those who are hunger, hunger and thirsty. When we come together for worship, we are announcing our thirst, and we are coming to the only one who can provide it, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, to have our thirst quenched. We have our own water ritual, don't we, church? We know this splash. Most of us in this room have experienced the splash in our lives. Think back to Pentecost for a moment. I never thought about this passage. I spent so much time with, right, growing up in churches of Christ. I never thought about how many splashes occurred on that day. That sound that's found throughout Scripture, it's found in John 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. That splash is there 3,000 times on Pentecost. Just imagine the sound of that, right? <coughs> splash after splash after splash. And what, what did the splash do? We were committing publicly to follow Jesus as Lord. And we understood the promise of that splash. At the splash, I was forgiven. At the splash, I was given the Holy Spirit again. I understood what the splash did for me. 
But I failed to understand what the splash was intended to do among us. Paul talks about the implications of the splash in Galatians chapter 3. I want us to think about this as a community, not just what the splash does for us, but what the splash is intended to do for all of us, for y'all in Texas service. Galatians 3 verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, clothe yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The rituals in the church I grew up in. Why did we stand up? See what the splash does? I don't remember much about this passage, about being reminded that when you were baptized into Christ, there's something that changes not just in you, or is given to you, but it's something that happens in the community that's being developed from the splash. We didn't exhibit the beautiful racial diversity of the church in Acts 2. You know, it's when the Spirit is poured out, it's poured out with all of these people from all of these nations. And in the church I grew up in, we heard God's word preached by sons of God who prophesied, but not the daughters of God who were promised by Joel, reminded by Peter. Nothing in the ritual that I grew up in uh, opened my eyes to that reality. We didn't exhibit the socioeconomic diversity of the early church where people gathered together in verses 42 to 47 and, and they gave as everyone had need. They made sure there was nobody who was needy among them. See, the splash of baptism wasn't only making me right with God, it was supposed to put things right between me and, 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 and all of us, right? All of creation. It was supposed to draw us together in perfect unity. And because the worship gathering I was a part of didn't exhibit the implications of the splash, a world where there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, male nor female, I was blind to the Spirit's work to create a new humanity among us. And as I think about my children, I'm concerned about the very same things because this hasn't shifted from my dad's church to mine. I'm concerned they're being raised in a church that's far too white, far too wealthy, and far too male-dominated. I'm concerned the rituals they're experiencing might just blind them to what the kingdom of God is all about. I'm concerned the rituals they're experiencing might lead them to assume that Christianity is at best when it's in power over culture, which has never been a good thing in the history of the world. I'm concerned that the rituals they're experiencing might blind them to the cause of the care for refugees who are fleeing Syria. They might just confuse us about the 150 migrants waiting just 165 miles south of here in the border. As people see them as less than human, undeserving of the compassion of God. I'm concerned that these rituals are, that we're experiencing, my children are experiencing, might lead my daughters to give their greatest gifts and leadership outside of the church. Rather than to deal with misogynistic and devastating comments about their desire to seek power for title, something men have been doing for centuries. I'm concerned about the rituals and what they're leading them to and what they might be blinding them to. I'm concerned, church, because it is entirely possible for Jesus to show up offering life at the same time we're trying to make his death happen. It happened back then. And I wonder, if you were to show up today, would you recognize Every Sunday when my kids come to church to engage in religious ritual, my question is this. Are we helping them uh, engage and clearly see who Jesus is? Or are we blinding them? Are we inoculating against the true power of those living waters that 
pours out through them? Are we inoculating them against the real thing? Are we giving them a picture of the beloved community that Jesus came to develop? In a world that's increasingly divided by race, gender, socioeconomics, church is called to picture a different reality. Our baptism, our splash, demands that we live into a different standard. So church, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Because if you are, Jesus has a word for you this morning. Let anyone who is thirsty. They say it again. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me to drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So may the living water lead us out to live the implications of our baptism. May the living water influence us to live into the new creation rather than the consequences of the curse. May the new creation convict us to build churches that look like the beautiful diversity of heaven rather than the homogeneous reality of suburbia. May the living water fill you with courage and boldness to stand up for those who experience injustice. May the living water cause us to create rituals that lead people to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus, let this water flow. Let us thirst no more. Oh God, we ask for this living water once again. Our desire is that we can be a people who understand the splash in Scripture, who understand the sound of our own splash in our baptism. And may that splash not just do something for us personally, but may it, it induct us into a life of the kingdom that Jesus clearly preached to us. So God, make us thirst no more. That's our cry. And send your word. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Thank mm -hmm. you.